Momentum is the quantity of motion of a moving body. Sounds simple enough. Lucky for us, the Olympics are, at the most basic level, a lot of bodies involved in a lot of motion. But the momentum we're talking about is anything but simple. It's the intangible X factor so strong that sports fans feel it through the TV. That mysterious energy that changes an improbable feat into inevitable fate. Like a locomotive, once it's gained speed, it becomes unstoppable. And it does something even the most talented blacksmith can't. It multiplies metals. Growing and growing in power, it glues individual actions into continuous meaning. And those who ride that momentum to greatness can channel that energy for good even outside sport. A statement that gets louder win after win after win until it can't be ignored. On this episode of The Podium, an incredible run of American metal performances and how the women behind them have continued growing and winning ever since. From NBC Sports, this is The Podium, a podcast about the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympic Games. As we near February, we'll bring you the stories from snow and from ice that shape the pursuit of gold. I'm your host, Lauren Shahadi, and over the eight weeks leading up to the opening ceremony, we'll dive into a facet of these games to discover the people and the places that will define them. It's Wednesday, February 21st, 2018. Day 12 of the Pyeongchang Winter Olympic Games finds skier Lindsey Vaughn at the starting gate of the women's downhill course. Just an incredible atmosphere here for the women's downhill. Again, Lindsey Vaughn has been waiting eight years for a race, which will take about 100 seconds. It's close to noon when she breaks the line and starts the time on the run. Down goes Vaughn one last time in the Olympic downhill. She tucks and carves her way around the 38 gates, flying off the smallest drops at 60 miles an hour. As she rounds the last turn, nicknamed Magic Tree, it becomes obvious she's within reach of the current fastest time set by Italy's Sofia Goja. Vaughn takes the final jump to the finish line, and Lindsey Vaughn crosses the line in second, a half second behind Goja. By early afternoon, Lindsey is standing on a podium, breathing in the 17-degree air with two other skiers, all finishing within the same second, and receiving the last Olympic medal of her career, one she dedicates to her grandfather. I wanted to win for him, and maybe I put too much pressure on myself to do that, but I know he's proud because I never gave up. With the 14-hour time difference between South Korea and the U.S. East Coast, many American fans are falling asleep. What they don't know yet is that by the time they go to bed next, they'll have a whole lot more to be proud of. 
At the moment Keegan Randall and Jesse Diggins notched the first ever U.S. cross-country skiing gold under the lights in Pyeongchang, some early risers in New York are sipping their first cup of coffee. Diggins making the play around Sweden, the first ever cross-country gold medal for the U.S. As those in Vermont begin scraping their windshields to head to work, U.S. women are gaining momentum on the ice. After the Netherlands and Japan spent the evening in Korea trading Olympic record times, the American team pursuit trio of Heather Bergsma, Brittany Bowe, and Mia Manganello have skated their way to the B-final, the winners of which will be awarded bronze medals. On their way, the winner of this race gets the bronze medal. Two minutes, 59 seconds, and 27 hundredths of absolute quad-burning effort is all it takes to secure the hardware. Here they come for the finish. It's going to be close. Cross the line. U.S. wins! The U.S.'s third medal performance of the day in Korea. As the skaters take to the podium, Bob Sledders, Alana Myers-Taylor, and Lauren Gibbs are lining up for their fourth and last run over the two days at the Alpensia Sliding Center. The competition is incredibly close between the German, American, and Canadian ladies. Seven sleds from those three countries are within a this second is and a half of each other. For Team USA, a must-have, fast, clean, and solid run. Myers, Taylor, and Gibbs leverage their track record-breaking runs to a silver. Brilliant! This has been her best run of the games, and Alana Myers-Taylor goes to the top. And for the first time in Winter Olympic history, all the steps of the event's podium feature a black athlete. History, recaps, and talk shows continue to be made into the Korean night. Stateside, the good news is spreading. Between work and social media scrolling, people are checking out what events are on by the time they get home. American dusk spells a new day in Korea. A total of eight American athletes are waking up with new medals from the previous day's haul and four events, all of them women. But the run is only getting started. Today's heroes are getting ready. I just remember I woke up and it was a, a little bit of a colder day, sunny, just a perfect day. You, you know, you just, that's as a winter Olympian. I know some people don't like the cold. We love the cold, right? We It's just, it was perfect. And it was an early day because the game was an afternoon game. And so you woke up and you didn't really have time to worry. You didn't have time to stress. So I got to wait all day. Think about this game. Another chance here. Kendall Coyne Schofield scores. Here comes Kendall Coyne with a shot. Score! Kendall Coyne Schofield, Team USA, women's ice hockey. Kendall, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate it. I want to take you back a little bit to the day of the women's hockey final. How were you feeling and how did you get there? Uh, the beginning of the tournament. So I, I remember we actually started the journey in Seoul. We went through processing there as a team where we got all of our cool swag and our ceremony outfits, our podium outfit. And 
and then from Seoul, we took a bus to Pyeongchang and, um, you know, the journey began. We, I just remember going into the Olympic village and, and seeing and meeting other team USA athletes. And that's one of the best parts about the Olympic games is getting to meet and, and hang out with the other athletes, especially the ones from, from our delegation, just listening to their journeys, hearing how they, you know, made it to the Olympic games and how their, what was their path to getting to the pinnacle of their sport. Well, the previous day was full of U.S. medals. Was that something you were feeding off of? Oh, yes, of course. We're, we're cheering on our Team USA athletes all the time. Or, of course. I mean, in 2018, we were able to attend other events. And so any opportunity we could without you know, being distracted or, or tired with our competing schedule. We were, we were front and center at what we could be cheering on our athletes and our fellow cheering on our fellow athletes. And, um, I, I know there were many times where you would see, um, you know, those athletes walk into the village and you're yelling, congrats, like that was awesome. Whether we could be there or not be there, uh, we would sit in the, the village together. And usually we, when we knew there was a medal on the line, we'd all get together and watch and cheer from, you know, our, our village or if we could be there in person. Uh, oh, yes, we're definitely we're definitely following the medal count. And it was you, you woke up. Uh, we all walked to the Team USA dining hall, which was just right around the corner from the village. We had a food that was familiar to us, whether you had French toast, eggs, sausage, whatever it is that you wanted, you had available to you. Um, and then we had a, a quick little workout uh, activation with our strength and conditioning coach, Jim Radcliffe, in a, I don't even know what it was, maybe a parking garage, just a, a random space around the village that he set up for us to um, get our legs going, just to you know activate our, our nervous system a little bit before the game. And then... We went back to our dorms or we went back to the village and then everyone did whatever they needed to prepare. And, and I mean, you blinked and you were on the bus and it was go time. Just wait and see to get the official confirmation that Jamie Anderson is a double gold medalist in slope style. During the ride, that medal count adds a notch when Jamie Anderson wins the first ever women's snowboard big air. It is official. Jamie Anderson is golden once again. A couple valleys south at the Jungsung Alpine Center, a young skier with an already golden pedigree is visualizing her second run of the women's combined, which consists of both downhill and slalom courses. It isn't going as well as planned. So I was really trying to get myself psyched up because I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be really good at this and I don't know, I, I don't know <laughs> it's going to work. And it is the second run in the ladies' Alpine combined the slalom run. Well, the ladies' alpine combined moved from day 14 to day 13 because of inclement weather. And if you look up, I was going to say, if you look up into the skies, you can see the clouds have rolled in since the uh, first leg of this combined the downhill. What I met, remember the most drastically was that all the first races were delayed and postponed. So we basically just had races back to back. The alpine combined event, to be honest, I don't remember too much about the downhill portion. I think I had a solid run. It was a bit windy, but I think that day was a little bit calmer. And I remember specifically the slalom portion of it that, you know, that Alpine combined races tend to be, um, the slalom portion tends to be on the simplest part of the track, the easiest. It's, there's not a, not a lot of technical challenge that goes on with the track. And I remember thinking, hmm. This track, it starts off pretty steep, actually. Uh, like, 
not very in line with the typical alpine combines we see. There was quite a long pitch right off the start. And I was a little bit nervous for it because I'm a, you know, technical skier. I do a lot of slalom and um, that should be what I'm the most prepared for. But I was almost taken aback by it. Wow. I mean, that must have been a pretty scary course to rattle someone who had won a medal only days prior in giant slalom. You said you're a prepared, not heroic athlete. What does that mean? I I guess it's just that I've always grown up seeing other athletes have these performances that see, they, they just, I, heroic is the only word that I can really even think of to describe it. It just, it's not that you know, they're amazing athletes, they're champions, you know, some of them are greatest of all time in their sport, but they have these performances that are just all, it's just hero status. It looks like it shouldn't be possible to do that. And then they do it despite all the odds, no matter what adversities they had to overcome leading up to that performance. And they just do it anyway. Like, you know, they just go 110% and they just win and and they weren't supposed to by any means, but somehow they did. And I was always like, I can pretty much win when I'm supposed to because I've had really, really great preparation and I'm just generally skiing faster than anyone else. Um, if I have to push myself beyond like my 100% limit, then generally speaking, like I, I just won't do that. I'll opt to, you know, survive and fight another day and... Um, not take extra risk than needed. And it's very methodical. You know, I've been told that I ski almost even like a little bit, almost a little bit robotic. Like everything is just very, very methodical. There's a reason for every movement. And that's sort of how I've trained my entire life. Very disciplined technique and, you know, always a reason for every day of training, always a purpose. For Michaela Schiffer, the disappointment in the slalom or specialty earlier here, but a chance to leave South Korea. So who is Michaela Schifrin in that moment in 2018? In 2018, I was <laughs> 24, I think. <laughs> no, sorry. Oh my gosh. I was 22. <laughs> That's really embarrassing. <laughs> I was 22 years old and I think that year I felt quite a lot of expectation. You know, my my whole life pretty much revolved around ski racing and I felt like I had the power to really, you know, excite people um but also let people down if I if I failed, if I didn't win races and especially if I didn't win when we got to the Olympics and even when I did win, I still felt like somehow I was going to let people down by not winning again. And I just think there was, a, there was a lot about 2018 that had me feeling a lot of pressure. And I wasn't, I wasn't quite prepared to deal with that pressure yet. So in a lot of ways, there was a lot of soul searching going on there as well. And it's definitely an ongoing learning process. But I had a boyfriend. We since broke up. But, you know, at the time, it was really great support and um, something that helped me take my mind off of ski racing a little bit. And it was a pretty powerful thing for me at that time. Um, what else? 
I was still blonde. <laughs> so this methodical blonde 22-year-old skier drops in and... Seconds behind Vaughn after the downhill. And Schifrin with about a three-quarter second cushion over Holdner, who's the current leader. And wow, has she lost some time. Half second back. At Kendall, the women's hockey final begins. What, what happens next? Oh, what didn't happen in that game, I think, is the better question. I think everything happened in that game. Uh, it was it was a back-and-forth game. And like, like a lot of gold medal games that I've participated in, the first period is always a little sloppy. Uh, you can tell everyone's a little bit nervous, gripping their stick a little tight. You know, their, their lungs may be... May be uh, getting filled a little bit quicker than normal just because of the, the intensity of the environment. But um, as everyone starts to settle in, you start to see some some really great hockey, some back-and-forth hockey, some tape-to-tape passes, more shots on net, and that's exactly how that game went. Okay, so you're playing against the Canadian squad, which has won the last four Olympic tournaments. How did you feel? Did you feel confident? Did you feel pressure? I mean, for our team, it was gold or nothing. That was the, that was the goal that, that we had in mind. That's always our goal is to win a gold medal. And so in 2014, when, when we had a two nothing lead with three minutes and 36 seconds left in the game and we couldn't close it out and, and team Canada came back and tied the game up and then ended up winning in overtime. It just, it felt like we handed them the gold medal. It felt like we gave away the game and we couldn't find a way to close it out with under four minutes to go. Um, you know, you think about the work, the the work, and the hours and hours spent uh, preparing for for that moment alone, um, and to feel like you came up short, it, it lives with you for a while. And every day I went to the gym, every day I went on the ice, every day I got the opportunity to put on that Team USA jersey. Um, it was with that end goal in mind of, of winning a gold medal at the Olympic Games, and um, I would say a lot of my um, a lot of my my thoughts and my preparation were around, okay, what could I do differently this time? How can I be better this time? Last minute of play in the first period. By the end of the first period, American skiers David Wise and Alex Ferreira have left the halfpipe raw, winning gold and silver, respectively. But David Wise has defended his gold medal from Sochi. David Wise gets it done. Alex Ferreira takes home the silver and 16-year-old... Apart from the podium, Wise and Ferreira also share matching tattoos of the Pyeongchang emblem to remember this special day in February. Back stateside, many are making their own memories, albeit less dramatically. So many people have brought up their memories from 2018 of staying up late, it, being in the middle of the night, waking their kids up or their kids were up and their kids didn't go to school the next day because they were too tired from staying up and watching our game and, um, you know, everyone on pins and needles back home. And It may be early afternoon on the Korean Peninsula, but stateside sports fans of all stripes are riding the momentum of U.S. medals deeper and deeper into this game and into the night asking themselves if Michaela and Kendall can bring home the hardware. It was about six minutes left in the third period. We were down two to one, and Kelly Panic hit Monique Lamaru Miranda with a stretch pass, and she went out in on a breakaway, and she, she scored and tied the game two to two. And we just went nuts, uh, and then it was two to two, and uh, shortly after that, it was, um, you know, regulation ended. And for the second straight women's hockey gold medal game, overtime. 
and we came back out for overtime. Nothing happened. A lot of back and forth play. Of course, there was a lot of chances and stress and like oohs and ahs and and oohs um, on the bench. And then. And we are headed for a shootout as overtime comes to an end in Pyeongchang. And then we went into a five-person shootout. Uh, and Gigi Marvin kicked it off for us, and uh, she slipped up a little bit, and then she found a way to put it in the back of the net. It was amazing. I think one of the best goals of Gigi Marvin's career. Um, and then Canada came back. Megan Augusta scored for them. Um, and then we we had a few more shooters, and we needed it was a must score for us. And Amanda Kessel had all the pressure on her stick, all the weight of the world on her shoulders. Amanda Kessel for the United States. Zabados cuts down the angle. Kessel scores! I don't know, it's like in the moments when you feel that you're supposed to do something amazing, that's when you feel the most pressure. And it's all, you know, you put it on your own shoulders. 2.34 to be beaten. Oh my word, what a ski on the bottom part from Michaela Schifrin. From 0.46 down to 0.47 up, Schifrin let it fly on that bottom pitch. And now you can go with whatever shooter you want. We send out Jocelyn Lamaru Davidson, and uh, throughout the Olympic Games, she actually got a shootout against Russia earlier in the tournament, and she kind of missed on. She tried to do something fancy, and she missed. And so Jocelyn goes out, and she has so many tricks up her sleeves. But I was like, Oh no! Don't do the one you did against Russia. That didn't work. Round six. And of course, she does it. She does something even more amazing. Um, and her oops, I did it again. Goal as we know it today. She went down and pulled an unbelievable move. And moving in on Zabinas, she beats and scores. I think what's so unbelievable about it is not the move itself. It's being able to do that move in in the pressure of that moment. You know, I can maybe do it on my backyard on the pond all day, every day, but to do it in the Olympic final with the game on your stick, with the pressure, the weight, a gold medal hasn't been won in 20 years for the United States, and you pull out that move, I mean, that just shows how incredibly talented uh, she is. And um, I mean, we just went nuts, and, and from there, we just needed a save. We saw her take a shootout earlier in this tournament, unable to capitalize. Makes it count today. When I go into the races, the majority of my wins have come from just being so sure of my skiing itself that I don't have to take extra risk anywhere. And that's over the years, and especially the last few seasons, that's been something I've, in a way, I've had to overcome that because there are certain races where you have to, you, you kind of ha have to take a little bit of an extra leap of faith or take a little bit of extra risk and trust some of the instincts you've built up. For Schiffer to gain that kind of time on Holder. Yes, she does! Just brings it back from nearly a half second back to a half second lead. And that means Michelle Giesing wins the gold. Schiffer the silver and Wendy Holder the bronze. There was too many people in the room who felt that silver four years prior and we knew we were doing everything we can to ensure a different result because no one wanted that again. And I think the challenges of that year brought us so close as a group that it wasn't about who we were playing. It was about our group. It was about our strengths. I couldn't have scripted it any better and I couldn't have scripted it in the sense that it would go to a sudden death shootout. It literally took every last ounce of, of, of hockey to, to get a, an Olympic champion. But um, that moment goes by so quick 
but it's the moment you work your whole life for and you just want it to slow down you want you want to remember every detail from that moment um it went from jocelyn's shoulders to maddie's shoulders and our 20 year old goaltender cool as a cucumber back in the net i, I remember looking down at it, at her and saying you got this maddie you got this maddie and she's just smiling like it's just another hockey game um and megan augusta came out megan augusta she scored earlier must beat Mooney to keep Canada's hopes alive. She is stuck! The United States wins gold in Pyeongchang! And then we just all, you know, went absolutely nuts, tried to get off the bench as fast as we could. Um, you know, there may have been some some falls and spills uh, getting off the bench, and I think we may have had some stitches needed for some players uh, due to skates flying in the air here and there, but um, it was unbelievable. Gold medal save. Our family and friends were definitely not allowed on the ice, and my husband's a larger human he's like six seven three hundred eight pounds and he goes i'm going on that ice <laughs> and he just he led the charge um as a, as an offensive lineman he goes i'm going for it and he just politely said excuse me to the, the security guard and um i don't think the security guard thought he could stop him so he just moved out of the way and then our families just followed behind him and that was kind of how we uh, broke the ice no pun intended of our family and our friends getting on the ice which was really cool and special They couldn't go to sleep after watching the game, even though it was three o'clock in the morning for some people. And yeah, it's late at night in the U.S., but since the previous evening, the country has earned no less than eight medals, raising their count from 12 to 20 in one epic run. And now the ninth medal of this run, in which seven have been won by women, is about to be hung around some very deserving necks. I think one thing that's special about hockey is, you know, you go through processing and you get the podium outfit and we all turn to each other. Well, we're not going to be wearing this one um, because we don't go on the podium. Our medal ceremony is right after the game. And so we're still in our equipment, sweaty as can be. And, you know, they put the gold medal around your neck and locked arm in arm, hearing the national anthem, seeing the, seeing the American flag being raised higher than everybody else's. What happens after you win, Kendall? I mean, of course, afterwards, We Are the Champions was jamming out, uh, that's for sure. It was just such a weight off our shoulders. I think we knew that we needed to win a gold medal, and not just to be the best in the world, to be an Olympic champion, but the responsibility that we have to grow this sport in the United States. And for many of us, we were on that ice because we met a 98er who inspired us, who touched us in a way that we realize there's a path for us in the sport. We realize that there is a place for us in the sport because a lot of us didn't see many girls playing hockey when we were kids, and but we saw them. And it only took us seeing one of them or two of them because a lot of us were too young to really remember the 1998 Olympics. And if you do, great. If you don't, you remember meeting them. And it changed our lives. And so 
we know will never be as cool as the 9098ers. And, you know, they were the first and the pioneers for us. But we know the impact winning can have on the sport itself. And I think we felt that, you know, so oftentimes people only talk about women's hockey every four years at the Olympic Games. But the work is being done every day. And we just oftentimes don't have the platform and the proper visibility to showcase the women's game. So after Korea, when we went back stateside to go on an Olympic tour like we did, we went to the Ellen Show in L.A. to a Kings game. From there, we went back to Tampa. We went to a Lightning game. From there, we went to D.C. We had some appearances there. We went to New York. We had appearances there on Jimmy Fallon. Um, and, and, and we went to the New York Stock Exchange. We went so many places, um, and so many people wanted to see us, hear from us, talk about our experience, talk about how they were inspired, whether it was their kids were inspired, they were inspired, they wanted to start playing hockey because they saw us. And I think that was one thing that was so special for all of us because we were those young kids at one point who, who said, I want to play hockey because we saw people like us. And so um, it was it was a busy three weeks. We were on the road a lot, but it was so inspiring for us because we have fought very hard. And to see that, look, people do want to talk about women's hockey. People do want to watch women's hockey. And we just need to continue to work hard to make sure it's, it's more visible outside of just the Olympic Games. Do you feel like you changed from players to role models or, or even advocates in that moment? Well, I think it's a good question. The visibility piece is is huge. Um, What was so special about post-Olympics 2018 was seeing 23 players go back to their hometown, their their markets, where they grew up, where their dreams started, and see them be celebrated in such magnificent ways alongside their community that that helped get them to where they are. And I think it's each person doing what they can and and being that leader and that role model and that change in their community, knowing that we represent the United States. So while I may be from Palos Heights, Illinois, I still represent uh, this entire country and we can make that difference if we each do our job where we can. And and, and when you put that together, that's a substantial change. And so I think after the Olympics, everyone really took ownership of how can I develop this game? How can I grow this game? How can I be a visible role model for this game? And, and continue to inspire the next generation to, to fill our skates. Uh, I mean, those are big skates to fill, just like the boots and sleds of other women, right, who contributed to this historic medal run. Doesn't it seem surprising considering, I don't know, considering how far behind in attention women's sports can sometimes be, right, that's fair, to have them leading this kind of dominance at the highest level? I think a lot of it has to do with the, the lack of opportunities that there are for women in sport outside of the Olympic Games and that a lot of women work their entire life for this moment. And it can be five games every four years. And those five games are what we wake up every day with a drive, a desire and a sacrifice to be the best we can be for this country for five hockey games. And I don't think people necessarily recognize or understand a lot of the sacrifice, the commitment, the financial burden that a lot of female athletes go through and uh, to continue to play their sport at the highest level. And oftentimes those are Olympians. And so I think when it gets to the Olympic Games, this, this is the moment that a, a lot of women have worked their whole life for. And so it doesn't surprise me that there's 
so many incredible female performances at the Olympic Games because when the Olympic Games ends and and they're officially closed, a lot of women have to return to a full-time job, have to return to something else. They can't return to a professional league that affords them the opportunity uh, to, to be professional and to call this their job, just like a lot of the men do. And I think that's that's part of the gap that needs to close. Um, not only does the, the, the gap of, you know, the lack of media coverage and the lack of investment, the support and, um, and resources overall, but I, I think you're see, when you see the incredible female performances at the Olympic Games, you're seeing gamers. And you're seeing gamers that deserve to be on a platform like the Olympic Games routinely, not just every four years. But so when you see you know these gamers and these, these leaders and these incredible athletes shine at the Olympic Games, it's, it's no surprise. It's just we haven't seen them in four years. So it's a little, you know, little bit of a surprise. What, what about personally? I mean, how have those four years changed you or your sport? Michaela, you first. Uh, that's a good question. I I feel very much like I've changed over the years and especially the last couple years with everything that's happened, with the pandemic, with my dad passing. I've had to learn a lot more about life outside of skiing boring, annoying things like taxes and investing and things that my dad really took care of that now um, things that I feel a lot more responsible for, which was natural. I was going to eventually assume that responsibility. But while I was ski racing, I just was always focused on ski racing. And I thought if, you know, as long as my parents are there to take care of other things for me, they're like my managers and I can be 100% all in skiing all the time. And now it's like, as soon as there's a day off, it's like, okay, let's go study a bit more about what a 1040 form is and like all these different things that um, take up a whole bunch of time. And it's, I think most people are looking at it like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, (laughs) you're 26 years old. But when you're an athlete and you start being, you know, like a professional athlete at 16 years old, you skip the whole period of like moving out of the house and going to college and like learning independence from that process. You skip the whole graduating from college and having to go out and find a job and figure out how to pay your bills and in your new apartment that you can barely afford. I skipped that whole period because I've just been focused on being a professional athlete the whole time. So those sort of basic life skills, I had to take a crash course. Like going into this Olympics, I realize that it's probably going to be filled with a lot of pressure. It's going to feel stressful. I'm going to feel like I need to perform. That's going to add pressure and that in turn is going to make it harder to perform. I'm aware of how tricky it can be to navigate that when you feel as if you're the one expected to do something amazing. Having been through the amazing things that the Olympics can offer an athlete and winning a gold medal and how that feels, but also having gone through the disappointment of coming in fourth place just off the podium that you were supposed to be winning. Um, so there's, I'm still not really sure how to handle it all, but at least I have a more open mind to it. Yeah, such an interesting I don't know, change in your outlook. What about you, Kendall? What what has the lead up been to these Olympics? 
Uh, so the next month is uh, is supposed to be the most exciting month of of our lives. Um, in two weeks, we're we're heading over to Beijing uh, to compete for the 2022 uh, Winter Olympic Games, and um, you know it's a moment that we've all been working so hard for since the games closed in 2018. Uh, since they put those gold medals around our necks and for the pl- players that weren't there, as soon as that Olympic year ended, it was the, n- the new cycle was was right upon us. And every day we've woken up, it's it's with that goal in mind. It's with this this experience in mind. It's with Beijing in mind. And and it's here. The time is now. Um, it's And it's been a long two years. It's been a hard two years um, because of the pandemic. And, and I, it's been so hard for everybody, um, including including these athletes, you know, about to head off to Beijing for the Olympic Games. But I think it's it's a it's a tough uh, challenge to put aside the stressors of the pandemic and, and try and enjoy this moment. Uh, but we got to find a way to do it because, it, you know, the, the more we enjoy this process and this moment and this experience, the better we play. Well, you've both translated that growth since 2018 into something, right? A, a book for you, Kendall, and a documentary on your end, Michaela. Yeah, it's the outside um, passion purpose, <laughs> the outside plus series. It covers all of these topics over these last, really the last four years, but kind of my whole life's journey leading up to this point and even beyond the Olympics, things that I've learned over the years, how I feel now, who I am as a person now, um, a lot about the training and the racing that I'm doing currently, and just kind of the journey that I've been on, because especially the last couple of years, it's taken a lot of turns that I never expected. And I guess that's life in a nutshell. So hopefully people find it relatable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote a book called As Fast As Hurt. It comes out January 18th. And my goal behind writing this book was wanting more representation on the bookshelves. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, I really didn't see many girls and women in hockey. Uh, and then in school, I there weren't any kids really playing hockey either other than my brother or my other siblings. And uh, so when it came time to doing book projects, I always looked for that book with, with a woman in hockey. And I remember finding two of them with, on Manoriam and Angela Ruggiero. And I did as many book projects as I could on those two books, but I needed more books. And uh, I love reading. I love reading uh, stories about people who have followed their passions, accomplished their dreams. And um, so when it came time to you know, writing down some goals that I had for myself. One of them was writing a book. And I, I think there's a there's a need for, for representation of women in hockey on the bookshelves. And that's that was really how it started. You talk about representation. Uh, you are that, right? I, I mean, you've both become role models for women who want to pursue their athletic dreams. What does it take and what does it mean to be the recipients and authors of Momentum on that day in 2018? I feel like... Those moments, they're like this convergence of, they're not like, they are this convergence of hundreds of different timelines and journeys and stories and villages that have been supporting and raising a child turned athlete, turned teenager, turned Olympian. And I mean, you can look at it as a count of medals, a historic historic run of medals and a 24-hour period, or you can look at it, and one thing I, I do think is incredible about the Olympics is you can measure it 
not only by metals, but you can measure it by stories and, and history because there's no way for any athlete to get to where they are, to that point where they're standing on the podium receiving their medal without their whole history of a support system and family and um, friends and teammates and rivals and everything that goes along in, in life and is just sort of magnified in sport. Um, things came full circle for me when I got back to the village and you know I had a lot of messages from back home which you know, this is now three, four in the morning back home and my phone's blowing up. Like, like don't people, people go to sleep. Um, but I got a text message from Cami Granado, who was kind of my hero role model and, and that 98er that I met that, that really changed the trajectory of my life at that time and uh, congratulating me on, on winning a gold medal. And it just, it just took, put a tear in my eye. I had to actually sit down um, in the village on my bed and just take it all in. Cause I, it was just, was such a full circle moment. And to think that I may be can have that impact on the next generation of, of, of young girls of saying they can accomplish their dreams too, just like she encouraged me throughout my career was just, it was just so surreal. I can't really explain it. Um, but yeah, I think I, if I was to describe it in one word, I would say magical. And I think it's, it was a, it's a special feeling that you work, you, now I'm, I feel like I'm working my whole life to replicate. Um, or I should, yeah, I've been working the last four years to ensure we can replicate those feelings and for those who haven't experienced so they can experience uh, that moment and those feelings too. Momentum. It fuels wins. But maybe progress as well. It can be felt on the field of play and one continent over. It's that energy that allows athletes from different generations to help push each other through a text in the Athlete Village. If you want to hear more full circle moments like Kendall's and other insights into the lives of athletes at the games, you know, moments like these, so every horse has a passport. My bike didn't show up for five days. We never expected those would be our headshots for the next two or three years. <laughs> we do make TikToks together and we had a lot of fun testing out those cardboard beds. Tune into In the Village, another podcast from NBC Sports every day during the games. That's it for this week's episode of The Podium. Follow now wherever you're currently listening to get automatic downloads. For more Olympic content ahead of Beijing, check out NBCOlympics.com. And starting February 3rd, tune into the networks of NBC.